My introduction might not seem like it fits the sermon, but hang with me. What is it with Secretary of State John Kerry and uh, boats? Some of you are old enough to recall that during the Vietnam War, he was an officer in charge of a swift boat for four months. He returned home and received a silver star, a bronze star, and the purple heart. And as a civilian, though, he turned differently in his thinking, and he accused before the U.S. Congress uh, America of war crimes. And uh, it was quite prominent at the time. When he ran for president, all this came back because a group that knew him in Vietnam formed a party against him, if you will, and they gave us the term swift boat through their efforts to derail his presidency, which they did a pretty good job of doing. Now, with all that, uh, where was Kerry, I suppose, uh, when things fell apart in Egypt? Well, he was not to be found in Washington. Uh, he was on a boat again. And he was sighted by some, and uh, he was on his private boat. Now, this is a faux pas of the nth degree in one sense, to not be on the job, but on your boat, uh, taking your leisure. And there was some confusion. And then we are told that uh, he was in contact all the time on the cell phone, I guess a cell phone. And it was secure phone. I'm not sure about that. Is any phone secure? But anyway, a blogger made an interesting observation that Mr. Carey was leading from behinds. You'll get that in a moment. <laughs> He's married to Teresa, and I haven't seen them together for a long time. Now, you may wonder at this point, what does this have to do with the lesson today? Well, I'm poking fun at power, of course. Is that wrong? I don't think so. We need to to, if you will, uh, chide those in power. Uh, we need to chide them uh, and to poke fun at them to keep them humble. Now, the subject of our text today, in many ways, is a carry figure. He has a checkered background. You know, it's interesting that we think God is always going to use people who are our pristine character. We think that God is always going to employ people in his service who deserve it. Well, when we come to this text, I think there is a great deal of uh, kinship, if you will, between the character that we are looking at today, Jacob, and the person that I just poked fun at. They both have, if you will, a checkered background that could and was challenged by others. Jacob, if you read the story in Genesis, and he has many, many chapters there. There are at least 12 to 13 chapters given over to Jacob. He is not a man of sterling character. How does he start out? By usurping his brother's birthright in cahoots with his mother. And he goes to a far land to escape the wrath of his brother, and he ends up there in some Strange dealings, if you will, with Laban, his uncle, and soon to be his father-in-law. And so therefore, Jacob, in a real sense, is like many of us. 
He certainly has his moments of failure. He can be accused of hypocrisy, and yet he comes home eventually to gain a great role in the history of salvation. Like many today, Jacob is a reminder of our foibles and our failures. Now, in this sermon today, I want you to see a few things. I want you to see that Jacob's encounter with God gave Jacob a new and better perspective on life. Well, now, doesn't that sound modern? Actually, that's, that's too tepid. I want to rephrase that. A new perspective. That doesn't seem quite strong enough, does it? Let me phrase it this way. What we find in Jacob, what we find in Jacob is not just simply a new perspective. Jacob actually encounters the true and the living God. And what he discovers in encountering God, that a face that he was coming home to return to face, his brother Esau, a face that the last time he saw it was full of vengeance, is now turned if you will, into a smiling face of forgiveness and reconciliation. What you will see in this text today is that Jacob, in the night, in the night when he struggles and wrestles with God, he does not see, if you will, the face of God, but he goes away declaring that he had seen the face of God. And this turned his, if you will, his dread into confidence. And it brought a new day in his life. It changed his life. This was a life-changing encounter that he had. And I believe that this applies to all of us, as you will see. At God's command, let me remind you, Jacob is returning home. He actually had to flee from his homeland, the promised land, because he had gotten on the wrong side of his brother. And his brother obviously was seeking vengeance. And so his mother, who always was behind, by the way, he was favored by his mother. He was spoiled by his mother. And uh, that is a, a, a sermon in itself. But we must not get distracted, though that's a wonderful distraction to figure out his relationship with his mother and his father. But she devises a scheme, and his father do, recognizing the situation is in, that he should go to his mother's brother and find a wife there. And he does, and he leaves. And he's gone for about 15 years, I'm guessing. Now he is called home by God. Twice in the previous chapter, he is called home by God to come back. Now, in coming back, he has to face his past. He has to face his past. There is a sense when we, we go profoundly wrong, it never goes away. We must come back and have to face it. I think that's why John Kerry got swift-boated. He had to face that somewhere along the line. We have to face those kinds of things somewhere along the line. Jacob never really escaped from his past. He had to come home and face it. And what did he have to face? He faced a man, his brother, who had just reason to take vengeance out upon him. And he comes home, and let's see what happens. At God's command, he comes home to claim, if you will, his patrimony, and also to become the very organ of uh, God's blessing through the covenant. 
He comes home to, to the land of promise, but he has to face his past. Now, there are a couple of things I want to mention here at this point. I named this sermon Wrestling Jacob. Now, I didn't uh, just simply bring that out of the blue. I read a book once called Wrestling Jacob. It was concerned with the relationship between uh, the slaves of the South and the white establishment of the South. A wonderful book. It's a book that anyone would have to read if they're studying pre-war civil uh, cultural life in the South. Wrestling Jacob. But I want you to know the title is not Jacob Wrestling. It is Wrestling Jacob. God actually comes and encounters Jacob. God takes the initiative in the wrestling match. Note that. Number two, I want you to see also uh, this particular thing uh, is a true struggle. I was in the home of one of our parishioners many years ago. A number of us were. It was a fellowship meeting. And I noticed a picture on Catherine Paulus's wall. Just as I was ready to go out to the door, facing in the little cubby part of the door hole there, sort of, there was a picture. And it was Jacob wrestling. And what I saw was an extraordinary face struggling with God, having such a grip upon the being that he was wrestling with, that his very hands, so filled with strength, had pressed clear to the bone and through his flesh. The picture has never left me. Jacob was in a true struggle. Now, when we come to this, we want to ask our question here. I've already mentioned God. Who in the world is he struggling with? This is an amazing text. It's rich with, with many possibilities for a sermon. I have to ignore most of them. But one of the things we cannot ignore, really, who is he wrestling with? Who is he wrestling with? Well, those who deny that the story is anything but fiction will say something along this line. Jacob is wrestling, if you will, in their superstitious ways. He thinks he's wrestling with a night demon called Incubus or Succubus, one of those kinds of night demons who came upon him. And really, he's just struggling with his fears. Now, that's apt to be a modern-day interpretation, isn't it? But that doesn't take the story seriously. It doesn't take the Bible seriously. And the Scriptures are God's revelation to us. Uh, you see, people come up with those kinds of stories because they cannot believe that God would encounter us in our history, would encounter us personally. Who is he wrestling with here then? Well, if you read the book of Hosea, Hosea says it's an angel, the angel of the Lord. Our text, regardless of whether it's an angel of the Lord or an incarnation of God himself, our text says that Jacob saw the face of God. He encountered God. He renamed the place because his experience was so profound. It was so much an experience of God that he said, my wrestling that night was an encounter with God. Now, how are we then to interpret this? How are we to interpret this? Let me say that there are two ways that I want to suggest. First of all, we, we, we can interpret it sociologically. And secondly, we can interpret it psychologically. Notice I didn't say theologically yet. How do we interpret this? Well, sociologically. 
I'm going to say that we interpret it in all three of those ways, sociologically, psychologically, and theologically. Sociologically, what do I mean by this? I mean that Jacob represents more than his individual self. He represents a people. All of Israel, if you will, is summed up in him in this wrestling match. Think of it that here is the man that God passes the blessing of the covenant through, and he represents Israel. In fact, his sons, his 12 sons, become the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in a real sense, he represents a corporate experience of Israel. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this. He is the father of the sons who will become Israel. So when Jacob is wrestling here, he is wrestling with God. But he is also a representative of the covenant wrestling with God. He represents that relationship that God had with his covenant people and his covenant people had with God. I want you to notice that. I think sometimes we are afraid, if you will, to point out some of the struggles that Israel had and the way they related to God, how they complained so much. Sometimes they seem to be very irreverent in their relationship. Sometimes they went entirely off the reservation, so to speak, and served other gods. It was never a pristine spiritual relationship from beginning to end. It was always a struggle. And in a real sense, if we interpret it this way, we, we can see that Jacob represents Israel and its struggle and its walk with God. It's wilderness wanderings, finally coming into the promised land, then going into captivity in Babylon, and then coming back. All of that history he represents. So God also, my friends, becomes known, if you will, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in a real sense reinforcing that. So he is a corporate person, and he represents the tortured relationship that Israel had with God. Now let me say that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes has a tortured relationship with God, does it not? How we struggle as individuals and how we struggle sometimes as a church to do what God commands us to do. We don't always carry out the Great Commission, do we? We don't always do those things that the church is to be doing. We're not always salt and we're not always light. You know, it is a wonderful thing that God will strive with us in this way as a people. And so in a real sense, even in the new covenant, where we have the spirit of God to make us, if you will, have a deeper and more profound relationship as a people with God, we still tend to disobey. And so we can understand that in that way. But let me also turn to the psychological understanding of this text. There are three words in Hebrew that I want to mention to you very briefly. Nefesh. It's a word for soul. It means life-giving force. It means the instinct of the soul. There's a word ruach. Ruach means spirit or wind, and it, it has to do with emotions. There is another word, nishama. It means the intellect, the soul that, if you will, thinks and moves and makes decisions. When I use the word psychology, I'm including that. The way we think, the way we experience, the way we move. And so Jacob is a man that now has a past that he has to come back to and face. Face psychologically, 
He has to face it spiritually. He has to face it emotionally. He has to face it intellectually. He must come to terms with his past. And in this sense, it becomes then a sermon here today and a text which speaks to our souls and our lives and our relationship with one another. Jacob came back, if you will, and his first encounter was with God. I want to talk about this. Notice he encounters God. St. Augustine probably was as most profound in some of his psychological statements about human beings as anyone could ever be and has been in the history of the church. He reminds us that our souls are made for the Lord. And he goes on to pray, let our souls find no rest until they find their rest in thee. Jacob has been a restless man. His affairs have never been settled. He is a man now that must come to terms not only with himself and his brother, but more basically he must come to terms with God. You know, there is a verse in the scripture which says the way of the transgressor is hard. And I think sometimes we fail to remember that some of our transgressions bring hardship and continued hardship. And we wonder about our lives and we say, why is the Lord doing this to me? And we've yet to really come to terms with who the Lord is and what he has done for us. We're like Jacob, always striving, never actually encountering God. And finally, he does. The most basic relationship that you can ever have is not with your neighbor, not with your child, though it's very basic. I'm sure that Justin and Julia will question that. They love their child. The greatest thing in the world is to be a father or mother. But it's not the most basic relationship, not even with your spouse. The most basic relationship that God has ordained is with himself. And for the first time in his life, Jacob has truly, even greater than the experience at Bethel, truly come to terms with God. He struggles and wrestles with God. God comes to him in a real sense and forces himself upon him so that Jacob is stopped in his tracks and he must come to terms with God. And what God does is reroute him in reality. You know, we, we, we look at the politics of our day, and I know that we can make fun and poke fun and laugh and sometimes cry, and sometimes shake our heads and say, good night, where is the reason? We might say to ourselves, this is insanity. The truth is, a culture can go astray as people can go astray. We need to be brought back and recentered, refocused. And in order to do that, we must encounter that which is at its deepest level reality. And who is that? God. It helps you to see things better. It helps you to see things in the right light. When Jacob is wrestling with God, God in a real sense is taking him on a profound journey and experience to let him see things in a different light you almost come to the conclusion here in this text, and this might sound strange, it almost seems like that when he was in the dark there, God leapt upon him, pounced upon him like an animal, and forced him into this experience. When he 
and Esau were to meet. This experience so changed him, Jacob, that when he finally in the next chapter meets Esau, what does he see? He does not see a face of vengeance. He does not see a brother who is going to slay him and his family. When he sees his brother, he sees the face of God. That's in the next chapter. You know, some of our problems are mountains because we have not truly faced deep reality in God. You know, whenever we are absent from God, and Jacob was absent from God for 14 to 15 years, I am sure that his fears welled up in him every time he thought of home. I am sure that he had gotten away from God. His wives were delving into pagan gods. He had gone astray in many and various ways. And so when he is called home, he must experience God in his presence to give him a true outlook on life. Jacob learned two or three things here. I know this is a long service today, but uh, it's glorious service to have a baptism in the Lord's Supper. But let me make two more points real quick. Jacob learned some things in this encounter that stayed with him the rest of his life. I don't know how much his character changed. I don't think that it changed a whole lot if you want to know the truth. But his views of God changed. He got a different perspective of who God was. Not only God would be with him, but God left him knowing that God is merciful. I want you to see how this plays out in the story. They are wrestling in the night. And as it gets close daybreak, God says, let me go. And Jacob says, no, I want a blessing. And he's hanging on for dear life. Now, if God refuses to bless him, this will take him into the daylight. And it will mean the death of Jacob. For no man can see God and live. It was merciful that God came to him in the night. It was merciful that God, just before the day broke and he could see his face, God blesses him so that Jacob might live. Now, what do you think Jacob carried from that experience? Why did God then bless him rather than kill him? That was the choice. To demonstrate that he is merciful. We had a child baptized here today. Let me exhort the parents to always teach this child the mercy of God. Too many of our children go out into the world believing that God is against them. It creates a different reality, a different life. Oh, let our children know that God is merciful. Let you know that God is merciful. What is your vision of God? Is this some harsh reality that's trying to get you at every turn? Or it is one who blesses you and lets you live. Jacob went away that day reminded that God is merciful and that he blessed him and let him live. There's another thing to take from this, that God is gracious. 
God is gracious. Mercy is with God withholding that which we justly deserve. Grace and graciousness is God giving us something that we don't deserve. And in this context, the last thing that Jacob took from that experience was God's blessing. God's blessing. The very last word to Jacob was, Jacob, I bless you. Do you feel blessed? Have you experienced God in such a way that you know that when you go out, you go out unto a bright new day with God's blessing in your life? You say, Pastor, I don't know whether God is blessing me or not. I don't know whether he looks with kindness and favor upon me or not. Oh, my friend, you have not struggled and prevailed against God until you walk away knowing in the sunlight that you have God's blessing upon your life. God blessed him, and God had sent him away to be his covenant partner, to carry on the covenant blessing to the next generation. I told some of you that last week that I have changed my mind about uh, some things. When I came to Westminster, I, I wanted everyone to know Christ, and I still want everyone to come to know Jesus Christ. But I used to think that if I preached enough clear doctrine, that that would create that possibility. Now, let me say, I have to be able to preach the gospel to create the possibility. But the gospel really is seeking from me not just simply a doctrinal understanding of things. Presbyterians do a great job on doctrine, don't you think? We're pretty long on it. We're pretty long on doctrine. We love theology. But the real purpose of the gospel is to bring you to an encounter with Jesus Christ, to experience him in his grace. John Stott says that the essence of Christianity is knowing a person. Insofar as theology can help you do that, great. But my friend, you can study theology and be very distant from God. We need to encounter God in a relationship that changes all of our relationships. I've changed my mind on that. I've changed my mind that I should have emphasized from the very beginning Knowing God in a true and profound way, just not knowing you're saved, but knowing God and living in his presence forevermore. I now emphasize experience much more because it brings you that assurance as the spirit of God witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. Let me say that Jacob left that day and that place a new man. God was with him. The reminder was there, the hip out of joint. It's kind of a sacrament to him. God was merciful to him and let him live, and God blessed him and let his face shine upon him. The picture you take of God with you in life will be the way you will serve him. Have you encountered him? Do you know him in his mercy? Do you know him in his grace. I started out talking about a politician. 
I'm actually having fun. It's entertaining me more, maybe more than you. It might make some of you mad. But uh, I'll get to the Republicans another time. We are, apart from the grace of God, doomed to fear, disillusionment. We are, apart from the grace of God, doomed to darkness and doomed to despair. Jacob came home. God met him at the borders of the promised land and told him, I will be with you. That's the limp. I am merciful to you and I am gracious to you. Now serve me. Praise be to God for his wonderful gift of himself. Amen.